my privilege to speak back to back like this. I always think of the preacher and his dozen eggs that he purchased. He went to the store to buy a dozen eggs, and when he got ready to pay for them, he didn't have enough money. He lacked 10 cents. And so he said to the owner of the store, he said, I'll just put them back on the shelf. And the owner of the store said, no, no, preacher. He said, that's not necessary. He says, not but a dime. He said, go right ahead and take the, take the eggs. He said, I'll be fine. And the preacher said, oh, no, no. He said, I don't do business like that. He said, I'll just put them back on the shelf. And the owner of the store <clears throat> said to him again, he said, now, preacher, said, take the eggs. He said, that's all right. He said, it's not but a dime. He said, go right on. And again, he was about to say, no, I, I don't do business like that. And the man that owned the store happened to attend services where he preached. <clears throat> and so he said, go ahead and take those eggs, preacher. He said, I'll just take it out and preach him. And the preacher said, well, he said, I don't have any 10-cent sermons. He said, well, in that case, I'll come to hear you twice. So anyway, <laughs> my time to speak back to back, I always think about the preacher and his dozen eggs. But we're very grateful to have each one of you present today. I'm going to use the blackboard a little this morning as uh, we study, and uh, you may have heard about uh, the teacher that had read the 23rd Psalm to her class, and she said, now I want you to draw what you saw. And so uh, she then collected the pictures, and she picked up one, and she saw some sheep, and she understood exactly what the child had seen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So she understood that. She saw some beautiful meadows, and she saw some streams, and she even saw some tables. So she understood exactly what the child had seen. Uh, prepares a table before me in the presence of my name. But all of a sudden, she picked up a piece of paper, and all she saw was that. And she knew the child intended to turn the sheet in because he had signed it. And she thought and thought, what, had that, what did that child see? And so she, not being able to really ascertain what he had seen, she called him to her desk and she said, John said, uh, son, she said, I have your paper here. She said, what did you see in that song? And he said, teacher, he said, do you see that? He said, I never could draw. But he said, that's the tale of the last sheep that just passed by. So I hope that we'll get more out of it today than that. But I did want to use the blackboard this morning. And if our objectives are reached, when this lesson will have come to a close, two things will have obtained. Number one, we'll know better how to study our Bibles. And number two, we will have gleaned some material that will have assisted us in living our Christian lives. Friends, there are four books in the New Testament called prison epistles, sometimes called captivity epistles. They are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. It's interesting to observe that each one of these has a singular emphasis. The emphasis in the book of Ephesians is the supremacy of the church. The emphasis in the book of Philippians is the supremacy of the Christian life. The emphasis in the book of Colossians is the supremacy of the Christ. And the emphasis in the book of Philemon is the supremacy of the person or the individual. For here's the whole book of the Bible dedicated to the salvation of one man. And that'll run away slave. 
Now, you have an overview to an entire section of the New Testament. The four books called the Prison Epistles. Now, out of them today, I want to lift one of these and deal with it for the rest of the time. And that's the book of Philemon. Now, as we study the book of Philemon, we're going to make a threefold approach. <clears throat> Number one, I want us to engage in what we will call background material. Background material. Every book of the Bible has what is called background material. And if we can ascertain what the background information is, it will then assist us in uh, really studying the Bible more advantageously. First of all, by way of background material, let's observe what we would call accolades. The word accolades means praises. What are the praises that have been paid to this book? This book, Philemon, has been called the courteous epistle. It has been called the polite epistle. And it's very easy to understand why that's the case. You see, Paul is dealing with a very controversial matter here. He's dealing with slavery. And he does it so courteously. And he does it so diplomatically. When I was living in Houston in my native state, one of our elders was a banker. And he said to me one day, he said, Brother Winkler, he said, do you want me to tell you the trait of character that's the most lacking in people today? Well, you know what I naturally thought he would say. I thought he would say, honestly, people don't pay their debts. They borrow money and then they won't make their obligations. To my utter amazement, that wasn't the case. He said the trait of character that's the most lacking in people today is the trait of just being courteous. And through time, I've often thought about that. And I'm not so sure but what he's about right. Just being courteous and being kind and being diplomatic, being courteous. I'm grateful that I was reared in the generation in which I was reared. My father would have disciplined me if an adult had have entered the room and I would not have stood up. My daddy would have disciplined me. Secondly, we didn't call any adult by their first name. It was either Mr. or Mrs., brother or sister, and if it was a relative, ordinarily it was aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so. If uh, you happened to be on a bus and a lady got on, you didn't have any second thoughts. You just got up and gave her your seat. Now, what were they teaching us? They were teaching us to be courteous. And friends, there's still a place in child rearing for that. To be courteous. To be courteous. There's only one thing about child rearing back there I hope we never go back to, and that's putting knickers on boys. Never put knickers on boys. It'll stunt their growth. But you know what? Now, y'all know what knickers are. You know, y'all wore knickers. How many of you, you fellas, how many of you fellas wore knickers when you were growing up? There you are. Knickers were these blousy trousers that went down just below your knee and had a, an elastic band. My mother thought I had to wear those until I got married, and that's, but anyway... Don't ever put knickers on your ball. Number two, what about the author of this book? The author of the book of Philemon is the same author of the rest of the Bible. 
The Bible never has had but one author. And the author of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. He wrote the Old Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1, 28 through 21. Number two, he wrote the New Testament, John 16, 13. Number three, what about the penman? The penman of this book is the Apostle Paul. That's why this book begins, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, and so on. I, Paul, he said in the book, have written it with mine own hand, and so on. So Paul penned the book. Number four, when was this book written? It was penned about A.D. 62. Well, from which was it written? It was written from the city of Rome, wherein Paul was a prisoner. That's why he says again, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. Why, he says, I have begotten Onesimus in my bonds, and so on. Speak later in the book about my fellow prisoners. He's in jail in the city of Rome, Italy. Well, after that, to whom was the book penned? The book was penned, and this is very important. It was penned to Philemon, and to Achaia, and to Archippus, and to the church that met in their house. Now, contextually, Athia was his wife, and Archippus was his son. Now, we don't know a great deal about this man, Philemon, but here's some of the things we do know. Number one, we know that he resided in the city of Colossae. Now, that's apparent by reading Philemon, verses 1 and 2, and Colossians chapter 4, 7 through 19. And then, secondly, we know that he was a convert of Paul. That's why in the book the text says, Paul writing, that thou owest unto me thine own self beside. Now, unless Paul had somehow or another saved Philemon from a burning building, for example, and in that sense Philemon owed his life unto him, and that's not very likely, what Paul meant was, I led you to Christ, and in that sense you owe your life unto me. So he was a convert of Paul. Now, that's interesting for this reason. Colossians 2.1 says, Paul had never been to Colossae. Well, if Paul had never been to Colossae, and Philemon resides in Colossae, and Paul has converted him, then the mind quizzes. How did all that come about? Well, Ephesus was in somewhat close proximity to Colossae, and Paul spent considerable time in the city of Ephesus. And so because of that, probably, what had occurred is Philemon had gone to Ephesus, and had come into contact, we'd like to think, providentially, with Paul, and Paul had led him to the Lord. Then let's see thirdly about this man, Philemon. We know that he was a man of wealth. Well, how do we know that? Number one, he had slaves. Number two, he had wealth so as to assist the brethren in their needs. That's apparent by reading verses 4 through 8. And then number three, he had a house large enough to, well, accommodate the church in Colossae they met in his house. And to imagine that Paul ordinarily traveled with a company of men. And Paul said, prepare for me a lodging. He had a house large enough to accommodate a host of guests. He was a man of wealth. Now, that's important. And uh, the reason why that's so important is this. You will recall, back in the decade of the 60s, that we had the Kent uh, university slaying. We had, for example, the, the very tragic incidents that occurred in Chicago during the Democratic Convention. Uh, we had uh, the Jesus-only people, the, the hippie movement, and so on. That's when the history of America is written. The decade of the 60s. 
will go down as probably one of the most turbulent periods since we had a beginning as a nation. That was a very turbulent time in American history. Very turbulent. And we're so grateful that we've come out of it. Well, why do I say all that? During that time, there were a group of young people, and uh, they were all over the nation. If you went out west, you saw them probably more uh, so than you would have otherwise. But uh, there was a group of young people that were reared in good homes, good homes. And yet they all of a sudden just became adverse to society. They were anti, you know, social by way of the present society is concerned. So that the dirtier their clothes, the more tattered they were, the older their automobile, and the more frequently it could break down, the happier they were. They had a total aversion to anything materialistic. Now, it could be that we contributed to that. Now, don't say that to any way at all mitigate their guilt. I'm simply tired of this matter of people breaking civil and divine law, and people say, well, you know, really, you look at their background and you couldn't expect otherwise. I don't believe that for a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, there comes a time in a person's life when he's responsible for his actions. And we need to understand that. We really need to understand that. That's invaded the judicial system of America. It's invaded child rearing until today. We've got lawlessness running rampant. We need to make sure and think about that. So I don't, I don't say that for that reason. But my point is they were at first anything materialistic. Now, the reason for that is because there is a great misunderstanding when it comes to anything materialistic. Friends, wealth is neither a virtue or a vice. Never has been and never will be. It's neither one. It's what we call a neutral commodity. Now, you determine whether wealth will be a virtue or a vice on the following basis. Number one, how you come into possession of it, and number two, how you make distribution of it. For example, if a man comes into possession of wealth by stealing, by gambling, or by some unethical business practices, yes, he has wealth, but it's not a virtue, it's a vice. Why? Well, he came into possession of it unlawfully. But you see, a man can have much of this world's goods and come into possession of it lawfully. For example, he may be very frugal. He may have saved his money. Or number two, he, made a, he might have made some wise investments. An elder came into my office one day and he said, Brother Lincoln just stole my, stole my stock. I said, oh, he'd invested in some school furniture manufacturing. And he said, uh, 10 for 1. Relatives, and well, I'll not give the location, had started up a factory in which they manufactured some of the, well, probably the premier line of school furniture in America. And they said to him, Brother Eugene, said, you ought to invest in this kind of thing. He said, what he had put into it. And he got $10 for every one. Anything wrong with it? Nothing in the world wrong with it. I was in a meeting in the southern, well, actually the central part of our state, right close to Texas A&M. And while I was there, the brother said, Brother Winkler, while you're here, 
said, you ought to go to the bank. And said, just think. Said, it is absolutely a circle. You know what had occurred? They had discovered one of the richest veins of coal in America, and at the same time, it struck oil. And people who did not even have indoor electricity had had oil struck on their places, had coal on their places, and they had become extremely wealthy overnight, and they said, it is the most humorous thing. Said, they, they don't know what to do. Said, they come down there with that money. Said, they don't, they, they don't know what to do with it. Anything wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that at all. What about a man who invests in real estate very, uh, you know, uh, astutely? And all of a sudden, you know, he buys a piece of property, and all of a sudden it's worth 20 times what it's, you know, anything, nothing wrong with that at all. Well, what's my point? Have you ever heard anybody say this? They'll find somebody that has quite a bit of this world's goods, and they'll say, boy, I want to tell you something. A fella can't have what that guy's got and be altogether honest. Friends, that's so wrong to talk like that. We need to get out of that. That's being cynical, and if we're not careful, envious. Well, we need to watch that. You see, you can come to the possession of the lawful, but number two, suppose you do come to the possession of the lawful. There's just a matter of distribution. Now, when it comes to distribution, we watch carefully. There have always been three factors in the making of money. God, society, and the individual. Always three. For example, some of you have been to the Mississippi Delta. That's the most fruitful, fertile area in the world, save the Nile Basin. I have seen, and this sounds like a tale, but it's, it's true, and some of you have been down there will know. I have seen farmers in a buffer crop a year. I've seen farmers make four bales of cotton to an acre. Now, that's a lot of cotton. I've seen cotton grow so rank till it was way above a man's head, and it grew in matted. And the plantations owners would say, Brother Winker said, we got a problem. We don't know how we're going to get it out of the field. We can't even get the pickers in the field. We don't know how they're going to do what we're going to do. That's prosperity. Prosperity. Question. Suppose a man made cotton like that, and he said this. Oh, I want to tell you one thing. Nobody ever gave me a thing in this old world. I know how I got what I got. Buddy, I came up a hard way. It was just a matter of lifting yourself up by your own bootstrap. Is that right? That never has been right. Never has been. For example, who gave this man the soil? Who gave him the sunshine? Who gave him the rain? Who gave him the steam? That's God. Number two, suppose he made four bales of cotton to an acre and nobody bought it. At what value was that been? You see, society enters the picture. Did he work hard? Sure. So he's in the picture. There are three factors involved in making the money now, and there must always be three factors involved in the distribution of money. Therefore, if money comes into my possession, and I spend it on myself, and I never give any to God by which society is helped, then what? I'm an unjust servant. In fact, of the business, now we can understand why the Bible says if we don't give to God, we rob him. Why? He's got to make that money. If he was a partner, suppose you and your, suppose you had a partner in a business, 
And when the end of the year came up and you'd made $100,000 and you took the $100,000 and, you know, went to Florida on a vacation and never gave him a dime, what would you be? Didn't he help you make the $100,000? Wasn't he a partner? Did he go out and make the sales too? Sure. Well, you can take the whole one. Why, that's unthinkable. What about God helping you make that money? Society helping you make that money. And we never give it to God and to society. No wonder God says you rob me when you don't give. Now we get insight as to why that's the case and wonder about their fair share. You've heard about the fellow who said, I'm going to give to God 10% of everything that I make. That year all he made was 10 potatoes. He took one potato out and put it over here in the pile for God and still left him nine. Got back and looked at him and said, hmm, think I better give God another potato? What's the basic difference in 10 potatoes and in $10,000? Am I robbing God? I need to think about that. I, you see, there are three factors in life. Now, that's why it's important to observe that Philemon was a man of wealth. Well, I probably spent too much time with that, so I'll hasten along here to some of these other points, and then we'll get into this second topic. I better take the watch off so I can observe where we are. You've heard, haven't you, about the little Catholic boy going with the little Protestant boy to services. It was different. The little Protestant boy said to the little Catholic boy, he said, now they're going to sing. Well, everybody sang. He said, now they're going to have prayer. So they had somebody in the audience to pray. And that was so different for that little Catholic boy. And they had communion that day. And uh, everybody observed the communion. And that was so different to that little Catholic boy. The, little, the preacher got up to preach, and the first thing he did was take his watch off and put it on the stand. The little Catholic boy said to the little Protestant boy, he said, what does that mean? He said, not a thing. But I'm going to try to make this mean something today. All right. And so we see then to whom this book was written. Well, what about a synopsis of that book, 7 and 8? What about a synopsis of the book? Here is the synopsis to the book of Philemon. In the city of Colossae lived a man by the name of Philemon. He had slaves, among them one called Onesimus. Onesimus became disenchanted, and so he ran away from his master, probably stealing. Why do you say that? How could a slave finance a trip across the Aegean Ocean from Colossae and get to Rome? Furthermore, is that what Paul meant in the book when he said, If he owes you anything, put that on my account? Well, when he got to Rome, he meets Paul. Paul teaches the gospel to him. He obeys the same. Then the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to sit down and write the book, gives it to Philemon, sends him back to his, uh, gives it to Onesimus, and sends him back to his former owner, Philemon, entreating him to receive him back. Now, that's the book. Well, here's an outline of the book. Every book in the Bible can be outlined very briefly. This one happens to be outlined in four words. If you were to remember family, that's verses 1 through 4. If you were to remember fellowship, that's a part of verse 4 through part of verse 8. If you were to remember favor, that's 8 through 21. And then if you were to remember farewell, that's 21 through 24, you've got the book. In this section, he talks about asking and archipel. Down here, he talks about fellowship. When you've taken what you have and you've shared it with others. Here, he talks about grant me this uh, wish. Receive on that from the back. Down here he says, Now that's the whole book in four words. 
Well, this book, like several others in the Bible, has a key word. For example, the key word in the book of Hebrews is better. The key word in, books, in the books of 1st and 2nd Peter is the word precious. And the key word in this book is receive. Receive him as myself. Receive him perhaps forever. Uh, receive him uh, back and so Well, what about the characteristics of this book? Well, it's a one-chapter book, very few verses in it. It's not what we call, using accommodative wording, a theological book. What do you mean by that? Well, Romans is such a book uh, in that it discusses a great theological theme, justification. This book don't discuss any of those things. It's just a book on how to get along. That's Tectonus Park. And so not a theological book, but what we call a practical book. Well, in the next place, what about Christ? Christ is at the very center of this book. In fact, someone has said that Christ is more frequently referred to in this book in that same number of verses than in any other section of verses in the entire New Testament. Now, there's a reason for that. You see, here is Onesimus, and here is Philemon. What's the case? They are estranged one from another. Now, when two people are estranged, automatically they are reconciled to what is called a third party or a common denominator or a mediator. Now, in this book, you have Christ at the very center. Well, what's the point? Here is uh, Onesimus. Onesimus could not be right in Christ and because of Christ, and Philemon could not be right in Christ and because of Christ unless what? Onesimus and Philemon came right with one another. That's when you get Christ at the center. You see, anytime two people are at outs, one, or in many cases, both of them, are not right with Christ. If there's anybody in this audience this morning with whom you will not shake hands or to whom you don't speak, your soul is in danger. I say that to you kindly, but that's the, that's the biblical facts of the matter. You see, you're not right with Christ. Now, if you've done everything you can to bring about a reconciliation, then you're right with Christ with the other party's problem. But any time two people are not right with one another, they're either both not right with Christ or at least one of them. And that's what's the case here in the book of Philemon. That's why he's at the center. Well, I want to mention one more point by way of background and we'll leave that. <clears throat> the next thing I would like to see is how this book fits into what we call the overall theme of the Bible. Friends, we have said for years that the Bible has 66 books, and that's fine. I mean, we're nowhere at all saying that you jeopardize your soul if you say that. We've said, for example, the Old Testament has 39 books, and the New Testament has 27. And incidentally, here's how you can always remember that. Old has three letters. Testament has nine. <coughs> there are 39 books in the Old Testament. The word new has three letters in it. Testament has nine. Multiplying, you got 27. You always will know how many books are in both testaments. But if we wanted to be minutely accurate, we would not say that the Bible has 66 books. We'd rather say the Bible has 66 chapters. The Bible is one book with 66 chapters, and it has one basic theme. One basic theme. And all 66 books, chapters, develop that theme. So that whether you are reading Genesis, 1 Chronicles, Malachi, Esther, Acts, Matthew, or Revelation, you're reading the same thing. Someone says, 
strength. If we haven't got a hold of that, that's why our Bible study is piecemeal. If we haven't seen the first Chronicles is discussing the same theme as, for example, Genesis and Acts, we've missed it. We've missed it. There are 66 books presenting one theme in the entire Bible, and it's presented from the historical perspective. Some of us have made it. That's the reason why I don't like to sit in my Bible. I never did like it. Friends, we don't spell that word by way of historical history. Here's the way we spell it. The Bible is his story. It's his story. It's history, but it's his story. And thus it becomes very sacred in its making. Well, what is that theme? The theme of the Bible simply is the salvation of man that comes through Christ that brings glory to God. It doesn't make any difference. Where we're reading, that's what we're studying. Now, the book of Philemon develops that theme. See, it's, a, it's in one of the chapters. Well, if the theme of the Bible is the salvation of man that comes through Christ that brings glory to God, then how does this book of Philemon develop the theme? It simply teaches that's this salvation that does come through Christ, that does bring glory to God, is the salvation that is accessible to all people. Why do we say that? Why, who is saved in this book? A runaway slave. Nobody was looked upon as more worthless than a runaway slave, as we'll see just in a moment. But here's the whole book of the Bible dedicated to his welfare. That's why we then say, that's what the interest of God for book is. Now, if we had been getting a hold of it all these years, two things would have resulted. Number one, we never would have had any problem evangelizing poor people. And number two, we never would have had any problem evangelizing people of other races. Never. If we'd been understanding the book of Philemon. That's what this book teaches. That's the theme of it. It's salvation for everybody. And that's why the song we sang a moment ago was so appropriate. The gospel is for all. Now, every book in the Bible, whether in Old or New Testament, can be approached like that. And then when you have gotten that background information and then you open your Bible to read it, it becomes alive. Now, how to study the Bible. But now let's go into the book. And secondly today, I would like to make what we would call a brief biographical study of the man Philemon to whom the book is taken. Well, what about this man Philemon? Number one, we know he was a worker. Paul says to Philemon, my fellow laborer. Number three, he was cooperative. Why? My fellow laborer. Number three, he was a man of worship. How do we know? The church met in his house. Number four, we know that he was a good family man. Remember, he greeted Aphia, his wife, and Archippus, his son, when he sent greetings to Philemon. In the next place, we know he was a man of faith and a man of love. Verses well, I believe it's 4 through 6 says, they called to remembrance by leaving faith and love, now watch it, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Why is that so? For they breathe. You cannot love the Lord and not love his people. Didn't that first John say, if you love not your brethren whom you have seen, how can you love the Lord whom you have not seen? So no wonder he talks about his love toward the Lord and toward all saints. They're joined together. Same thing about faith. If you have faith in the Lord, you're going to have faith in your brethren. 
Friends, we've got problems in the church today. I, we've got some problems, some severe problems. Nothing new. All living things have problems. Your fruit trees, for example, have blight. And so you have to, you know, you plant the turnip greens and they'll get alive. You, what's the point? All living things have problems. And so it's no marvel that we have now problems in the church of our Lord. But I want to say this about that. If we're not careful, that's all we concentrate on. It's problems and issues. And that's so wrong. And when, what happens, it causes us to get a magnet and cynicism to where we can never see the roses because all we see are the thorns. And that's wrong. That's so wrong. Brother, we've got some great congregations here. I can assure you of it that are loving people, that are evangelistic people, that are assembling people, Bible-reading people. I just wish I had time to give you some things that are happening today in the church that are so wonderful. Would y'all let me go over two or three minutes, let me tell you one or two of them. I want to tell you something out in Lubbock, Texas, this happened. Some, well, the brethren I said, Brother Lincoln, we've been high in Houston for 50 years, and we're for this, and we've got this. And all of a sudden, we woke up. Said we looked around, and we saw that black percentage of our membership was supposed to be able to be. Said all the girls said, no, Said we just woke up. Said we hired a preacher. Said now the same thing can do for Asian said, this is the same thing to pay money. said, that's what he wants. He said, you have your money, so why can't you do this? He said, you want me to tell you what happened? He said, we got some sick brothers out there. He said, we loaded our elderly people up, and he said, we're going to go home every day. He said, you want me to tell you these people and all the people who want to see them? They want to see all the people. They want to talk about it. You remember back when? He said, who would they take to the same party? He said, no. He said, that's good. But they just can't imagine what this is meant to be. Said, we have gone around for one of the congregations here in the city. We have a luncheon once a month, and we have asked and asked and asked, and we've got the message across to our elderly people to bring to that luncheon another person, a guest who's not a member of the church, at noon. And they said, last week, we had 500 members. He said, you want me to tell you where we're getting our prospects? Isn't that wonderful? I don't know what that does for you, but that excites me. That's marvelous. Why don't we wake up? Why don't we think? Why aren't we resourced? He said, that's marvelous. Look what's happening. So we need not think that the church, you know, they've gone to the dogs. We've got great churches. Great churches. But I said all that to say this. You show me a man who has lost faith in the saints, and I'm going to show you a man that's lost some measure of faith. He's not careful. He'll lose all of his faith in the Lord. I have known men that preached in the pulpit so admirably well that no longer are there and now are not even really recognized as being faithful. Why? Go back and look at their track record. All they found was false. All they found was false. Nothing was ever right with it. That's wrong, I'm telling you, that's wrong. Well, this man didn't live like that. He had faith in the brethren, he had faith in the Lord. Yeah, and that's about the Bible says, the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee. Then Paul says to him, I would have retained the lesson that in thy stead, 
uh, he, uh, that he might have ministered unto me. In other words, implicitly he's saying, so even if you were here, you would help me. So he's a friend, the gospel preacher. Add to that, he says, I trust through your prayers I will be delivered. He's a prayerful man. He then says that I have confidence in my obedience. Now, he was trustworthy. He says, prepare for me a lodging. Therefore, he was hospitable. And he says, I know you will do more than I say. Therefore, he was no minimum salute. Now, watch the board. He was a worker. He was cooperative. He was a worshiper. He was a good family man. He was a man of faith. He was a man of love. He refreshed the soul. He was a friend of the gospel preacher. He was prayerful. He was trustworthy. He was hospitable. And he was no minimum producer. Now, great churches have never been built on programs. And they never will be. Great churches are built on people. This kind of Someone says, but Brother Winkle, we have a visitation program. Is that unscriptural? Well, then I don't understand what you're saying. Have you ever had a visitation program and it went great, good, I mean just great guns for four weeks and all of a sudden it began to taper off? What was the problem? Not the program. The problem was with the people. See, our problem has always been people problems. We don't have program problems. We have people problems. Great churches are built upon people. Now, out of all this, I want to lift up. He was a refresher of souls. Everybody in this audience goes into one of those two categories. We're either a plus person or a minus person. Well, someone says, well, how do you tell? Have you ever gotten up one morning and, uh, you know, everything was wonderful? I mean, wonderful. And you got a letter or you got a telephone call, or somebody came by to see you, and all of a sudden you had the mother grubs. Now, I can't spell that, but all of us have had them once in a while. And all of a sudden we had the mother grubs. Or have you ever gotten up one morning and that's what you had? You had a severe case of the mother grubs. And all of a sudden you got a letter. Or you got a telephone call, or somebody came to see you, and it was a wonderful day. Well, you see, when you got up and it was wonderful, and all of a sudden you heard from somebody and it was a bad day, that person you heard from was a minus person. So you took away from them. So did you ever get up one day and you had the mother grubs and then you heard from somebody and it was a wonderful day? That's a plus person. And friends, if I know my heart, when I meet the Lord on the day of judgment, I want to be a plus person. I want to add to people's lives, not subtract them. Did you know it's possible for a person to become so fixed in life till he is happy when he hurts people? Someone says, you've got to be kidding. Oh, no. Let me illustrate it. I've had people come to my office, and they'd start laughing and chuckling, and they'd say something like this. <laughs> oh, I want to tell you one thing. When I left him, he was bleeding, buddy. I mean, he was he was hurt, and I'll tell you what, he'll think twice next time before he ever does that again. In other words, I'm so happy today. You know why? Because I hurt somebody. Friends, let me tell you something. If you're happy when you hurt somebody, there's one of two things wrong with you. You either have a medical problem because you're having mood swings, and you need to see a medical doctor, 
or you are basically mean. One or the other. And both of them are rather tragic. We don't live like that. We don't go around trying to hurt people, either by isolation or by sharp words or sharp looks, you know, or I'll just isolate you from... We don't do that. We just don't do that. And how many times have I heard people cry and say, Brother Winkler, they just don't have anything to do. And somebody's began to isolate people, hurt them. And you know what they said the other day about... I had students come in just last week to me and said, Brother Winkler, have you heard the rumor that has been said about me? And it was nothing. And I said, I haven't heard a thing in the world. And he said, well, I want to tell you the base of it. And they'd been discussing a biblical principle. And so he had made an affirmation, and all of a sudden somebody had taken the thing and just blown it totally out of proportion. And said, well, that's what, well, you see, that's wrong. This, this student was hurting, hurting. Brother, I tell you, life's too short to, to hurt. And let's don't hurt people. Let's heal people. You see. Let's live like that. Jesus was the great healer. He was the healer. And so this man Philemon was a refresher of souls, the text says. He was a plus person. Well, I must just mention the last one and go to one more moment. I want to go back into this book of Philemon, and I want us to note what we will now call the practical lessons to be gleaned therefrom. Ordinarily, we'd like to deal with about a dozen, but I'm only going to mention one. Only one. Do you know what the book of Philemon teaches us? It teaches us the value of the person. You see, when a woman citizen went to borrow money, using our vernacular today, and the banker said, well, I, I need to have a list of your collateral. I need to have a financial statement from you. You know how a man gave a financial statement back in those days? It's very interesting. When I came across this, I thought, brother, that's, all, that's like today, but it's still in principle, but how interesting to see this. What he did was this in his financial statement. He gave a list of his assets, and in one column he gave this. He gave his non-vocalia assets. Now, the word vocalia, vocal means sound. So under non-vocalia, he lists, for example, his plows. Plows couldn't speak a language. Next, he would list his semi-vocalia assets. Well, what semi-vocalia? That's where he would list his plows. Why a cow? Well, a cow could move, make a sound, but it couldn't speak a language. So that was semi-vocalia. Then he would list his vocalia assets, and that's where he would list his slaves. They not only could make a sound, but they spoke a language. Now watch the point. Right where they listed cows and plows, they listed slaves. Now that will tell you how these men were looked upon in that day. But here's the whole book of the Bible dedicated to the welfare of such a person. No wonder, we say. This book teaches us the value of the person. Have you ever said, they won't miss me. I'm not needed anymore. They don't care why I'm dead or alive. Nobody thinks about me anymore. You ever said that? Yes, friend. If you're honest, you said you said that about the church. You said that about your family. You said that about the community. And when that happens, 
soul on. Friends, this church needs you, and they want you. Please be assured of that. Your family needs you, and they want you. What's the point? You are so important. Men are coming back all over the brotherhood, and they're saying, that's the finest thing I was ever in attendance at. You know where he's been? He's been to a seminar. You know what they've been studying? Self-image. Self-image. How to improve your self-worth. And they're coming back and saying, that's the finest thing I ever heard. Well, we need that in the church. Oh, the Bible's been teaching that over 2,000 years. Why haven't we been getting it? That's what the book of Philemon teaches us. Self-worth and self-image. If our objectives have been reached today, number one, we know better how to study the Bible. And number two, hopefully we've gotten some information that will assist us in living our Christian lives. Okay, I believe we'll be dismissed.